Hey folks, my name is Andy Sitto. I'm a singer-songwriter, performer, and producer in Denver, Colorado. My guest this week is keyboardist, producer, and founder of the Little Village Foundation, Jim Pugh. I enjoyed talking with Jim a lot. In fact, we chatted for a little while after, uh, before and after the recording was going on, and um, I felt like we could have gone on for hours. And, and in our interview, we were, you know, we go uh, through a wide array of topics, and and that's my favorite. You know, when you have a game plan and it just you just run around and touch on different things. It's it's a really organic conversation in that way, and I'm so pleased that Jim was able to take the time to talk with me. We actually had to reschedule our interview um, because of uh, some weather happening in California, some crazy weather. So we rescheduled, still got it in. Um, Jim has played with many, many people. Um, He's performed or recorded with B.B. King, Etta James, John Lee Hooker, Robert Cray, Boz Skaggs, Van Morrison, Chris Isaac, the list goes on. Um, if you go and look at his Discogs page, you see names like Otis Rush, Little Charlie and the Nightcats, Todd Rundgren, Charlie Musselwhite, Muscle White, excuse me, Charlie Musselwhite. I apologize, Charlie. Um, it's a long, it's a long list. He's been in the industry for a long time as a keyboardist and producer. Um, his longest standing gig lasted 25 years from approximately 1989 until 2014 with Robert Cray. Um, and they, they live each, near each other now uh, in California. Um, in 2014, when Jim retired from his touring career, uh, he started the Little Village Foundation, which is a record label that fosters diversity, community, and roots music. Uh, it's much different than a traditional record deal. Um, there's no advancing money to the artist and then having them pay it back or anything like that. It's all, um, it's all fundraised money that they're, that they're doing stuff with. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a really great concept, um, and a great way to record deserving artists. So in our conversation, not only do we chat about his career and, uh, some of the artists he's gotten to play with, but we also talk about the little village foundation a good bit. So, uh, wonderful conversation. I, I'm very appreciative to Jim for taking the time. I want to jump right in. A quick thanks to our sponsor, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratormusic.com. Um, I've also recently opened this podcast up to a couple more sponsors. If you're interested in that at all, shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Also, I do this podcast. I'm also a performing and touring singer, songwriter. Um, I produce records for other artists. And I've got a Patreon page where I, I put stuff out early and um, you know, talk about things, whatever. Do, do things that people do on Patreon. Uh, and you can be a patron for as little as $3 a month. And I appreciate it so, so much. Um, one of the bits of content that's up there is a conversation with Mickey Raphael, who's been Willie Nelson's harmonica player since Willie started doing his thing. And aside, we, he did a full interview for Middle Class Rockstar, um, but then I had Nick Clark as a guest host. Nick Clark is on the Little Village uh, label and um, a, a very good friend of mine. And he was a co-host. So after we stopped the episode... Nick and Mickey just talk shop about harmonica for a while, and uh, I, I put that up. It's not out anywhere except for on Patreon, and uh, it's cool to hear two great harmonica players nerd out on the subject. That's just one piece of content I've got up there. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast in a non-monetary way, please give it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. It just takes a second, and it's greatly appreciated. All right, here's my conversation with Jim Pugh. I just got back from um, the San, San Jose, this place that I record at, Greaseland, um, and we did a record with this bass player, um, um, Bobby Vega, who is in bass circles, is kind of a nun. He played with yeah. 
played with both the Grateful Dead and Sly Stone. Um, so he's sort of an interesting combination of, of things. And he's very, he is, he is unique. He doesn't, I don't even think he knows the names of the notes on the bass. Like you would say, play a G. I go, I don't know where that. But he's got a nice groove. Oh, uh, there's YouTube. He's the only guy yeah. I know that can, who is a world-class bass player. And, and he's got tons of YouTubes. You should see. He can play with his fingers. He can play with a pick. And he can play with his thumb like nobody I know. So, um, And it was him and the drummer from the tubes, Prairie Prince, who's sort of a legendary Bay Area drummer. Yeah. So he did a bunch of instrumental music, which is kind of a departure for us. But uh, I did that. And I've got, you know, with this record label, I've got now like eight or nine records I'm supposed to make in the next two or three weeks. But then I don't think it's going to happen. But, eight no, or I, nine in two to three weeks? It's not going to be in two to three weeks. And it's not going to be eight or nine. But, you know, it's a little bit like with the sort of, uh, what do I say, with the success of Little Village, things are things are exploding we're continuously in the process of becoming anyway uh so there's a lot to do so you seem like you have a pretty cool job and it's sort of a retirement job in a way too right because you you toured for a lot of years and and then you got off the road in 2014 and said i'm going to start this uh foundation this record label and uh and help out artists i mean it just seems like your job's a blast isn't it well you know it it's i have to be honest with you yeah it is a blast i mean i have there are a lot of incredible things that um i i you know i was luck i've been lucky i've been really really lucky because i really you know i don't i mean i have in my career produced records i've you know, I've written songs, I've played on, you know, a lot of records and, and I've toured, you know, not just with Cray, but with Eddie James and going back with various groups from when I was 18 years old. I mean, it's so yeah. I, I've done a lot of different things. And um, this is a combination of things kind of that I just want to do um, and helping people. And also, I just couldn't get see myself getting in the back of who wants a 60 year old piano player it's like nobody does i mean it's it's really the ageism of the music business if um is something you will all realize you know you, you, and so i just sort of put together the things i wanted to do and the things that i care about and kind of rolled this rolled out and it, it uh, i know a lot of people because it's a matter of connectivity because i'm not really doing any of those things anymore i'm not i mean i play on direct people's records and i I produce some, but not really. I no longer am doing any of those things. I'm just sort of trying to uh, raise money and trying to help with logistics and administrative things. And that part of it is the music is the fun part. The rest of it is it can be work, you know. And I, and I don't, I don't do work really well. Well, and I, I actually I want to get into all that and how you're different than a, a traditional record label and, and how the fun, you know, funding and, and, and all that stuff. But to back up and, and hit on your playing career, um, so you, you're a, a lifelong California guy, I believe. Is that correct? No, actually, I, I was raised in, uh, born and raised in Chicago, suburban Chicago. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I moved to California when I was like 18. So, um, I mean, my professional career for all intents and purposes was in San Francisco and then the Bay Area and California. And what was your first introduction to music where you thought, hey, this is something I really love to do? Oh, man, you know how this goes. <laughs> you know, uh, I think when I was in fourth or fifth grade, I took piano lessons. And when I was in fifth or sixth grade, somebody gave me a Muddy Waters record. I mean, I had uh, me and my friends. We all we seem to have all had older brothers and sisters that, in terms of the, the timeline, older brothers and sisters that like went to the University of Chicago around the same time. Paul, if this makes any sense, that Paul the blues scare. It's what we call the folk scare. If you can remember, Fuji one, but you could ask your parents. It's like in the late fifties and early sixties, there was a, it's the Newport Folk Festival, right. From that, they started inviting blues guys. And so then that's, I think, is when 
white college students got introduced to the blues. And at that time, I had, you know, friends and relatives that were part of that, and they would give me their records. So at a, at a, at a pretty early age, you know, 12, 11, 12, something like that, I wanted to play like Otis Spann, and I really liked the whole thing. I was very, it was something that was going on kind of around me. We sort of discovered that, like a lot of people, because of the British invasion, I realized that the music I was listening to by the Rolling Stones was originally done by people that were like three miles away, you right. know? So it kind of got into that and got very much interested in going and seeing it and trying, you know, really way too young. God, it was, you know, I would never have let my kids do what my parents let me do. But um, yeah, so that's probably a long answer, but that's, you know, I mean, music, right? Music doesn't, you don't choose music. Music chooses you because it doesn't yeah. make sense for a lot of people. Well, there I, and there's a lot going on during that time. You're right. I don't remember that, and I might actually even have to ask my grandparents. But um, right, that's true too. You're right. But it, but if you're you know, uh, what was it? 1965, where Dylan brings his electric guitar to Newport Folk Fest, and it's uh, satanic it's, almost, it's, right? It's Bloomfield and Sam Lay, and it's people from right, and they got booed, and and what's his name? Pete Seeger cut the chords. <laughs> yeah. And I'm what I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm 68. So I mean, in 65, I was 11 years old. So um, anyway, there were there. And in Chicago at that time was really an amazing and kind of lot. So I guess in some ways tragic way, uh, you know, certainly the Martin Luther King assassination was horrific and damaged a lot of urban cities kind of some of them permanently and and i think that um certainly the democratic convention in chicago in 68 and the vietnam war and the civil rights movement and all of those things there were people who really were living on the edge because of all that was going on it was kind of there was a lot of things that innovations and things that came out of all of that and yet at the same time there's there was a lot of uh damage too and so you you head to california like you said at 18 and you're in the bay area and you're playing music and bands from that young age uh but you did a short stint at university of the pacific um for i basically think less... I came, that's basically what i came to california to do and i did that you know i i uh, there was a girl involved in it too which uh, you know uh, isn't there always um yeah uh and I went to the music school there. And after I realized, one thing I realized pretty quick was that everybody, well, they said, oh, you want to be okay. You're in the music conservatory. Well, you can have an elective class uh, in, in your second semester of your junior year. And until then, you have to take these classes. And I went, oh. But you and were then, in the music conservatory. Yeah. And then they okay. went, like, um, and also... Uh, you know, they were saying things. I realized that everybody there was studying to be a music teacher. And of course, I didn't want to be a music teacher. And, and um, you know, and then they kind of like went, and you got to be in the marching band. And I went, <laughs> I'm not going to be I'm a, out. <laughs> I'm going to be in the marching band. <laughs> You're out of yeah. your mind. I want to play blues on Fillmore Street. And so that's kind of what I did, you know, through one thing or another. And I mean, how long from you dropping out did you join uh rubicon and and start playing around at the stardust lounge and things well that that kind of had the stardust lounge got that story of that can you did your work that's very good i'm impressed um it it that happened pretty quick um you know people go and, and you know and i do it it's good cute but people go well where did you go to college and i where'd you go to music school and i went i went to the university of fillmore street it's like a stack of dimes in a jukebox because it really was literally i would go in you know and i was working with guys that were older and it wasn't really a band it was really just old guys that playing in this play, or older at the time now they would just seem to be children but then it was like by said geez he's 25 holy shit but you know, uh, being eighteen, and so I had to kept quickly sort of learn how to play, um, and that took a few years. Um, and then at some point, I joined Rubicon and worked and kind of got into that. I sort of sidestepped 
really having to be a working musician of you know playing um but in those period of those years i did play a lot of different styles of music and um and that's sort of the genesis and some it's a factor of little village um this is diverse music playing every i mean what were you at that point just willing to play anything like hey i just want a gig i just want to play music well, the story that I tell, and it, and it is there is basis in truth, is that you know when I dropped out of college, my parents who were in Chicago said, you know, okay, and they said, okay, you do what you want to do, and you when you run out of money, we'll tell you what you're. You come home, we can talk about. That's what they said. You can come home, we'll talk about what you're going to do next. You know. So they thought it was a phase. Uh, they thought that I was going to run out of money and move home, and they were going to go look. <laughs> yeah, go to Northwestern and shut up, or whatever <laughs> they weren't going to do. But something like that. I mean, I, I perceived it. And the thing is, is that I say, which is true, is that I never, I never went home. I never ran out of money. I lived pretty horribly for a while, but soon enough, I was able to sustain myself. And, and at that time, in San Francisco, being being broke or poor wasn't it was an attractive place to live and there were a lot of people in the same boat and it, it uh, i mean not just hippies but just like really i'm a little bit too young to be a, been a hippie and uh, um but you know it, it was an attractive place to be broke i don't know if i could do that in you know you know, uh, in Chicago or you know, someplace where it snows or someplace where, you know, I mean, I live without heat and water and everything for a while, but you know, that's what you do to try to get over to, to do it. And, and I was, and that was, you know, I wasn't miserable. I was happy. I was happy playing music. You know, that's what I wanted to do. And I would do, like you say, I would do anything to play any kind of gig. I've immediately fell in uh, playing Mexico, but I Mexican ranchera kind of little Joe and La Familia. I love Mexican music. I love mariachi. We've recorded some mariachi music. We're going to do a couple more Spanish records, speaking records. We've done one last year. We're doing more. Um, and I think that that's part of Little Village. I'm going all over the place. So you're going to have to figure this out, but follow me. Yeah, it is yeah. all these different styles of music, really. The, the idea of diversity, the thing I learned early on, I think, and looking at it is that, you know, there's a, there's obviously this common emotional quality to music, all styles of music. And, you know, it, it breaks down a lot of barriers. I certainly was in a lot, have been in a lot of places that if it wasn't for music, I probably would, wouldn't have made it. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't have survived or it was just, dangerous you know it was it were dangerous times but you know you can um music it, it has a way of sort of you can make peace and have communication with people without having a conversation about it. you know you know you go play uh Go play every day. I have the blues for the Hell's Angels in Oakland, and they ask, Do you "Want to buy you a beer?" Whereas if you were just standing there, they'd go. Well, so I mean, is, is if they were just standing there, they'd say, "Beat it," and they did too sometimes. Yeah. So I mean, and it, at my age now, it all seems pretty geeky to talk about, but that it is the genesis, that it is the building blocks of sort of, you know. Um, how I kind of came up with the idea for Little Village. And there are people that helped me. I mean, that, that's the big thing. All the people from, and I could list all these people that have helped um, Little Village and people who, who were like, I don't know what you're doing, but keep going. And, you know, all of that, starting your own thing. Because I'd always worked, basically, I mean, I've been in a couple of bands, but basically my whole career, I've worked for people. I do what they tell me to do, you know, and made a living that way. And so, playing just one, one more question about the this this Bay Area scene at the time when you're playing around at at these spots. I mean, is it always for beer, um, or I mean, is there pay when you're playing at Larry Blake's or at the Stardust? You know, that's the the, the I don't know how it is in Denver, but you know, if if you make blues money. 
well that was the thing that was playing about playing mexican music is that they paid really well yeah yeah it was, it was kind of sort of fascinating but they they i think because they were all union a lot of them were union guys uh, but they paid like longshoremen and stuff like that they paid really well it would even be pretty good by today's standards and that was damn near 50 years ago um wow. well, blues money you know is if you work 28 days a month you can make a living you can pay the rent you know you can you can actually if you really if you really pimp this thing strong you can you can you know raise a family you can have a house yeah i mean it's it's lousy work because all you do is go from i mean i think at one point i i remember i did seven gigs in one day you know um yeah. it started early and went late yeah yeah you, you want to hear this i don't know if you know what you're gonna use but let me i'll tell yeah. you this story Andy. yeah yeah well this yesterday I used to live in this one part of San Francisco where there was like a bar on the corner, like a lot of streets. And there was a bar on the corner, and it was like four-story apartment buildings, like uh, Victorian kind of. Like, and then down the, and it was kind of if you went one way, you go to Pacific Heights. It's like three blocks away. And then people, nobody had worked since like you know Paul Revere. It was very very wealthy people. I mean, and a lot of them seemed like they were just sort of sitting around. And then if you went to the right and you would be in the middle of the hood within a block or two and there was a, a barber shop that was owned by these guys from trinidad and they had um they had a pan band where they would sit in there it seemed like that the barber shop was a front for something because there was never anybody getting their hair cut but you know you'd walk by and you'd look at the barber shop and they'd be practicing you know guys and i'd see them at this corner bar and one night they go jim we got a gig for you and i went yeah right <laughs> you know? like, yeah. give me your phone number i went okay here again well a couple of days later they called me at eight o'clock oh, they called me like at seven o'clock i said we're going to pick you up at eight o'clock you're going to come with us we're going to go do this gig i go yeah. it's eight o'clock in the morning at seven o'clock in the morning i don't you know what and i watched all right fine drag my ass out of bed with a hangover and i get in the back of this van that's got no seats in it and i get in the back of the, and these guys it, you know they all have the little caps on i'm going we look like we're on our way to rob a bank or something i mean it was like yeah. the, with the penguins <laughs> and was all this stuff and these guys and it just it was really you know sort of and so we drive to uh I'm going, where are we going you said you'll see so we drive downtown and they go to the palace the sheraton palace which is one of the nicest old hotels in san francisco you go to the sheraton palace and i come we get out they open the doors for we get out and there are these guys standing there you know in suits going patrick i told you to be here you're late come on let's go and they they give yeah. us this rush through the lobby with all these banging steel pans and we go into this room and it's the rotary it's a breakfast meeting of the rotary club and there's like 300 people sitting in this ballroom guys eating breakfast you know and there's a lectern and there's a little stage and they got they go so we get set up and there's a piano and i'm going what am i going to be doing and then and then at one point the president of of chevron because it's in san francisco it, it was announced and he got up and he said it was so condescending i loved it he goes he goes well for patrick and his friends we were able to lo locate some steel drums that they from some oil drums that they made these steel drums from <laughs> it's like yeah you were able to locate them you've got like 10 billion of them but <laughs> yeah so he go they go he goes and they're going to play for us but first we're going to have a song uh yankee doodle dandy and that guy patrick <laughs> he turns around and goes you got it <laughs> and i played yankee doodle dandy i played it pretty good the second time the first time i was a little ham-fisted but yeah <laughs> what key did you do it in when putting on the spot like that what key did you play it in uh, probably C. You know what it's like. You're a yeah. piano player. Yeah, what do you that's think right. you going to do with A flat? <laughs> probably not. I don't know. But you had a choice. Well, it would be in some key that I've used to play, I'm familiar with. Yeah. Probably with C. You know, if you sit that, you know, that's the default thing on that circumstance at that. But the thing is that was hilarious was, to me anyway, was because, you know, then they started playing that steel pan playing, you know. Blue by you, and you know, and all this kind of like stuff on it. And I get in between songs, I go, 
did you actually get me up at seven o'clock in the morning to come down here to play Yankee Doodle Dandy? And these Trinidad guys turn around. Like, hey, we don't know it. <laughs> and I went, no, I don't think you would. Wow. But I did a lot of gigs like that, just sort of like, you know. And, and it's a, partly as a matter of being shameless. I mean, how much are you willing to put yourself in a position that you have no idea what you're doing? And yeah. people are going to give you shit about it. So, yeah. You have an extensive list of people you, you've played with. You know, if you look up Jim Pugh on Discogs, uh, there's like six pages of of records, um, you know, whether it's producing or playing keys on. Um, you know, there's names like B.B. King, Etta James, John Lee Hooker, Robert Cray, Boz Skaggs, Van Morrison. What was the first gig like that that you got and how did it come about? Well, the band that I, I joined when I was like 22, I was 22. Because I remember when I was 21, because uh, the first drink I had in a bar. And it wasn't too long after that I joined this band, Rubicon, and it was made up of people from Sly and the Family Stone and Cold Blood, um, which was a, another funk band similar to Tower. Um, and from that, and that probably was, I was in circumstances of, um, that were professional, although they weren't like, you know, quote unquote, big time name people. At some point, I auditioned to play, a few years later, after that kind of ran out of gas, I auditioned for um, I auditioned to play with Elvin Bishop and I was playing with Buddy Miles at the same time. I mean, it was really word of mouth um, how it sort of began. And then at one point I joined a band uh, or started playing at uh, this place in Berkeley and we backed up a lot of people. And it, it's really kind of word of mouth. It, it was sort of reputation um, or not reputation, but um, because you've done this, you can do this. And there were various promoters and agents looking back on it. I mean, it, I wasn't super busy doing great work. I always had to do bullshit work. Um, so that was really it. I, I played, Boss Skaggs opened a nightclub. Um, and he had sort of a house band that was kind of quote unquote all-star. And I played in that. And that involved playing with a lot of different people. And um, I suppose if it was the kind of thing you're asking me as somebody else, that somebody else that wants to be a musician, how would they go about getting better work? I, I definitely, for a few years, did everything. Every time the phone rang, I just did anything. I didn't care. I didn't care where I played or who I played with. And in some ways, it was a detriment because... Um, People that I know who have done really well in the music business, people like Huey Lewis or Chris Isaac or people like that, they're people yeah. that went to college and they wrote term papers and they kind of, their musical ability is such that they pretty much did just what they did. They didn't yeah. go play with people. They just did what they did. That's it. Their mm -hmm. own songs, their own way. And they went for the, you know, and it ended up being whereas if you can really play ten thousand tunes and you can play at the window in the window of macy's at christmas time which <laughs> i did yeah no you just do whatever and i mean i suck at it i don't know how you know i'm not particularly good at there's a few things i do okay but most of those things it's bullshitting you know yeah so yeah, but it, it's inter it's interesting. I mean, and, and you see that right with young musicians. You just take it every time the phone rings, um, or every time you get a text message now, or a post on Facebook, whatever it is. There's so many, um, so many different gigs, and it could be in the window of a Macy's, or on a street corner, or in a club, or a tour, a major tour. Well, Andy, the thing to do is, and, and I guess I've never taught, and I've never lectured, although I sound like I am, but I never thought about this so much. But if you look at any gig that you ever had that you think is a great gig, I go, okay, 
Robert Cray. I did that for 24 years, nine months, sort of. I go, and I raised a family and bought a house. And that's a great gig. Okay, how did you get that gig? How did he find out about you? And you go, he found about out about it from this person. And where did that person find out about you from this person? And you can always trace it back to a bullshit gig. Yeah, yeah. I played a wedding at Pacific Heights for no money, and it was raining, and it sucked. And that's how I got the gig. I mean, by doing it that way. So for me, the thing to do is do every anybody that calls, try to figure out a way to play with them. Although I think it's it is important to have good taste. A lot of a lot of the stuff I do with Little Village is trying to go. Don't do that gig do this gig you know it's yeah. trying to put people in a way that makes it them look good and uh, nick clark is good at that i think um and there are other people a, a big part of i think of being a musician and getting some success is the ability to make good decisions you know yeah it's the same thing with playing i mean sure. you know keyboard player you can sit there and and you can show off every substitution chord you change, you know, yeah. and impress your friends, but it's not musically appropriate. You have to stay. And the trick is to be appropriate and also interesting. And a lot of times, you know, you can't just play. I mean, we used to do that, we, you know, these soul Motown dance bands, and we just like play every kind of substitution chord on signed, sealed, delivered, or whatever. And that's great, except, you know, it's you. You look like you're playing in a wedding band. There's nothing right. Original. Right. People are going to hear it and go, you know, you're a show off about something stupid. So the trick is to be, is to be creative. Yeah, that makes some sense. Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely, it does. Um, no, I think that's good wisdom that that we can all learn from. <laughs> well, you know, it's like what people tell me. They go. I do sessions for people and they go, that's a really good part you're playing, Jim, but not on this song. I've, I, I played three, uh, three, sometimes five nights a week at a, uh, at a seafood uh, place. It's a piano trio, um, here in Denver. And, and, uh, I'm not really a jazz musician, but most of the players you end up playing with, with are, and there's one drummer that I really love to play with. And a friend asked me, so why do you like playing with him so much? And I said, because he's not a jazz player. And and jazz is wonderful, but he comes in and he has this way. I mean, he doesn't have jazz chops at all, but he has this way of hearing the song and doing what's appropriate for the song. And um, I don't know, it's really awesome. And of course, there's a time and place for, for everything. But um, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I I have lately since I stopped, in the last seven or eight years, and I have stopped touring, and I go around and play with people, and and I meet, you know, semi-famous musicians, and a lot of them go, "You do this for a living?" <laughs> they hear me play because it's it's uh, it's a it's I've carved out a little area of being able to. I like being an accompanist. I really do. I didn't. In fact, I didn't know that you can actually get a degree in it, but. Um, I like, like when I worked with Dada James, I started to understand this thing of being an accompanist is a little bit of, you know, listening, you know, like a conversation, you know, you can influence things, you could step on it, you can stick your dick in it, you can ruin it really easily, but it's it's continuously kind of helping create the thing. And if that means doing nothing, then do nothing. And if it means doing more than that then you do that and I, and I am fascinated and I am and you know it's a little bit like I mean I I, I never have had a, the, a, the the chops to be art Tatum I'm just not gonna you know wake up tomorrow and be yeah hurt. I can't string it. and I, I mean I I play now some but I certainly like you I don't consider myself a jazz musician and yet I spend a lot of time playing and studying it um yeah. yeah but i mean it, it's elusive and plus i'm just not you know i'm really interested in trying to be like john lee hooker i mean he could sing like three or four notes he could sing flat seven one three four five you know like maybe five notes some kind of pentatonic blues you know and, and 
on one syllable, you know, and 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 it's a matter of more of being able to do less. Obviously, that's a cliche, but really more and more to where, you know, if you can play one note and have it have significance, then you're doing better than a lot of people that are playing a whole lot more. So it's yeah. something to strive for. And the other thing is, too, is like when you, when you make records, and you must know, know this, but, you know, when you make records, you can judge your the quality of your playing by where the person who mixes it puts you. So if you listen to a record and you can't hear yourself at all, well, they felt like what you were doing wasn't necessarily working. Yeah. But if you can hear what you're doing or if it's featured or whatever like that, then that's an indication that you're you're you are you're not overplaying, that yeah. you're existing in a frequency. Oh, this is probably too technical, but you know this. Yeah. You're listening in a like the thing is when you play piano or organ or keyboards for that matter, see you only get part of the sonic spectrum, right? You don't right. get to play down where I like to play. You know, the below middle C, they just take it. I know they just take it, dump it. Yeah. yeah. You know, you get this thing way the fuck up here. You know, you got to sit in that empty space. Yeah. I knew there was this uh, organ player who passed away recently. And you might have heard of Mike Finnegan. And he he played on Electric Ladyland. And I went, Mm -hmm. how did you play organ? with a guy playing through a stack of marshals in a room like that. And he goes, it's easy. All you have to do is figure out, you don't necessarily, I like as an organ player, you don't have to play loud to compete with that. You just have to figure out where everybody isn't in this time and the spectrum. Yeah, and right. if you play in that, in that area, it's going to stick out. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, it's like that. Have you ever noticed when you go and you buy, you go to a music store or you buy a synthesizer or a keyboard, and people go like, "Oh man, I, I don't use the factory sounds at all. I re, I design my own sounds right? because man, the ones ones that come from the factory suck." And I go, and I used to kind of think that, but then I started meeting people, Kellen mm-hmm. Gaines or David Pacher people, and they would say, "Well, you know, the thing you have to do is." You have to design these sounds intentionally that you're playing with other people. And so that thing that's down there with the bass drum, you know, you know, full spectrum, well, they just dial it out. And so everything it does, it's very reedy, thin clarinets. But when you put it with all the instruments, it sticks out. It's actually very profound. It's orchestration, I believe. That's what they call it. Yeah. I lose you. I'm sorry. No, 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 not at all. This is this is great. I love where the conversation's going. We're getting and and I I enjoy jumping into the technical stuff too. Um, and and I do and I do want to jump into uh into to little village stuff. Uh, was was sort of my intent, but just I've you <laughs> my curiosity's been peaked in so many different directions. It's hard to know just where to go. You were with Robert Cray for for almost twenty five years, and in the nineties and in two thousands, he was touring quite a bit. Um, were you, uh, I mean, were you away from home for most of the year, for most of these, most of the time you were with him? There was, he basically never worked that much more than about, maybe in the first couple of years I did it, he did it seven or eight months, but mostly it was about six months. He'd work about three weeks and take 10 days off. And every once in a while, He'd go to Europe for nine weeks or he would do, you know, legs of tours that were longer. But for the most part, yeah, I mean, I was I spent and actually at one point for a couple of years, I tried doing playing with both Chris Isaac and Robert Cray at the same time. And Chris would do a thing where he wouldn't use a keyboard player (laughs) unless I could do it. I don't know why I was probably not a threat. Um, (laughs) And so I would go from one tour to another. And sometimes I would go from one tour to another within the tour. There was one night that I played in, in at this place um, in Washington, D.C. And I played there one night with Chris Isaac. And the next night I played with Robert Cray. And the stagehands 
was my B3. And that stage chance came at the end of the night after Chris Isaac and they go, uh, where do we put the B3? Where's the truck for the B3? And I said, just leave it. They go, you're playing here two nights in a row with two different people. I went, yeah. They thought that was pretty amazing. <laughs> That's great. When you saved them some uh, legwork too. Just leave it right where it is. It's fine. Yeah, but, I mean, you know that's the kind of stuff that it, it's intriguing to me. But unless you're a keyboard player or something, it's silly. Nobody cares. But what was the oh? Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. What was the decision? I mean, what caused the decision to get off the road in 2014? Well, I'd love to say that I decided I didn't want to do it anymore. But the fact was, and it had been going on for a while. I outlasted a lot of people in that organization, and I produced records. I've written songs. I mean, for Robert, produced records and written songs. I kind of got, got to the point where I'd done everything I could do, and also I was becoming a pain in the ass. I mean, I was, you know, I, I'll tell you, and I don't. I, I, what happened? Um, this will sound like such a rock mutt story, but I'll tell you anyway. I I I was sitting on stage at Madison Square Garden and I was playing with, with this troupe with Eric Clapton and BB King and Robert Cray and Jimmy Vaughn. And while I was playing, I went, This sucks. And I went, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm done. I mean, it's you said of, it to yourself, right? You didn't say yeah, it to anybody. Of course, right? But I was <laughs> but that, my attitude was like. Oh, this sucks, and I went. Uh oh, why? I'm not doing it. just because uh, you get to, you know you do anything enough. Eventually, you just go. You know, fuck it. I mean, it's it's a defense mechanism. It's you get burned out, you know, and you just sort of run out of ideas, and you you know, and you get sick of the people. The people that you're with are sick of you, and you you're sick of them. And at one point, Robert just goes shouldn't do this anymore and i went okay he lives around the corner i mean he i live in the middle of nowhere and so does he but uh yeah and you know it's it's not as if we're not friends we're we're friends but i don't need to see him anymore you know when you travel like that with grown men in close proximity for that many years it's like okay see you later <laughs> yeah so yeah but yeah. so you guys will meet up meet up every now and then for lunch oh, or yeah. whatever yeah, at the yeah grocery store or something every once wow. in a while is that near uh, Buellton or? Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Good knowledge. Very good knowledge. Yeah. Well, I, I stayed with a family, a, a, a friend of mine uh, who's, who's a, a singer-songwriter, and she lives right around the corner from Robert Cray also. And I'm just recalling this. This was in 2014 when I was there. Um, and so, yeah, I was trying to remember the exact name of that town. But... Um, well, they lived. There's like through there's there's Buellton, there's Solvang, and yeah. uh, Santa Inez, and I live in, and actually where Robert is, is sort of a not a subdivision, but it's a little piece of a town called Ballard, and he's since moved, but and he lives even closer. He's moving closer, but uh, it's all within. You know, it's a great. Uh, it's a it's, it's kind of like the way Sonoma County used to be a long time ago. It's sort of undiscovered, although it's growing. Um, yeah, you know it's really interesting. You know the um, that band NRBQ, right? Yeah, yeah, with uh, with Al uh, Big Al Anderson. I got to know Al Anderson through this one group of people that recently. I'm not really friends with him, but we talk every once in a while. And at one point, he kind of looked at me, and he's kind of a droll looking. And he got so. Where are you from, Jim? And I go Santa Ynez. And he goes, That's where I found all about the bass. I went, excuse me? At the at the Durango Songwriters Expo. Did you know the story? <laughs> well, I go to it. I've I've been to it many times. You know yeah. the woman that sang that song? Yeah. I should be interviewing you. That's an insane story. Well, I well, I don't know her personally, but I know but she was going to the expo. You know yeah, that whole thing. Well, you yeah. can imagine. See, you're not impressed. You're you're but No, I, I, I am. I am. It's a small world. I love it. I'm sitting <laughs> Al Anderson, this guy, is telling me this sort of song that has nothing to do in a million years, but evidently he he's a conduit for songs that he finds to begin. That's yeah. what all about the bass. I went, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess Ma Megan Trainer attended the expo, and and he uh, 
picked out that song all about that bass and said, that's a hit. And I, he was right. <laughs> so maybe uh, I should go to that. They have it at the Marriott, right? Yeah. Yeah, or actually, I think they, in recent years, moved it to Ventura. Um, to the Crown Plaza in Ventura or something. I don't even know how close that is. I have no... Uh, yeah, I don't know my California geography. I, f I fly into L.A. and beg someone to pick me up. Now, that's the first line for a song right there. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it's funny, you know, because it's just as much of a hick town as it is here. So what difference does it make? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So ju jumping into Little Village, um, it, it's a really unique, we call it the Little Village Foundation, um, it, but it's a, it's a record label as well. You're putting out music, um, and, and it's kind of centered on diversity and community and, and uh, roots. And something that you mentioned when you're talking about it uh, in a YouTube video or something is that a lot of these artists you record have never actually been recorded before. Is that true? I, I, it is shifting. The more people find out about it, the, and, I, and I won't name drop, but everybody wants a deal on Little Village because it's a great deal. Plus, no, a lot of people my age don't want record deals, any traditional record deals. There are not as many people. Let me see. There are not as many people that have never done anything before um, as there used, there used to be. The first In the first few years, it was. But right now, there's eight or nine. And, you know, also in eight years now with the phone, everybody, I mean, everybody has pretty much been in a circumstance. So, you know, one, he'd never done a record. One, two. Yeah, there's like three out of nine this coming year. The thing is, is that, and it, it should be probably um, clarified is that what I meant, what it really means is that people who have never that have never done a record where there was a national press rollout and it got them, them gigs where they get profile. Really yeah. what Little Village is, is we are, it's because intellectual property and content is the value of it is diminishing all the time. And that's what I, we see as being important is awareness more people who know who you are the better your circumstance is going to be so that's yeah. what we want i you know you use it's like you can have an article in the new york times about you which we have done recently about an artist and it being in the new york times is great that's the top of the hill in terms of you know um it's one of the most important media outlets in the world but at the same time you put it on facebook or you put it in social media that has all that much more value. So yeah. it's the common, what I'm trying to say is it's the combination of both not having been in the studio before and never having done what we would call a, a rec recording on that level. Mm -hmm. A lot of these people now, it's, um, it is slowly changing. So that's a very good question. It, we are in sort of in the process of becoming, and it is shifting. One of the things that's happened because it, it has gotten more and more popular and awareness and successful is that more and more successful musicians are asking to be part of it. And it seems like an attractive thing to do is to say, okay, well, let's do it with temp. Well, these are like, you know, professional musicians that have careers. Mm -hmm. This is for people who aren't necessarily that way. And I've walked away recently from a few things that were, that it's painful. People that are really, really good and deserve wider recognition, but we're not the people to do it because it's too, they're too far along in the process. Where, yeah. where is your, where is the aware and public awareness of you? so far enough along to where you don't really qualify for little village i didn't have to worry about that eight years ago i just made it up and kind of went well these this indigenous tribe from oaxaca okay well they've never made a record before and this blues singer from mississippi he's never made a record before well he actually he used to make rec recordings and he'd print them one at a time on a friend's computer you know so there's this whole thing and over time 
I'm now trying to go back to what it was um, originally. And we've also made different kinds of models of things. There is a band that we did called the Phantom Blues Band. Yeah. That I played with, with Taj Mahal. Well, these are professional musicians. I mean, they're and it's successful. So I make a recording with them. The Mike Finnegan and, it, and there's in Kansas and Selena, Kansas. There's a performing arts center that has um, a music school. It's a music school. It's called the Mike Finnegan School of Music. So we took all the proceeds from the sales of this Phantom Blues Band CD and are donating it to a scholarship program at. Um, at this music conservatory, music school. Mm. So it's kind of like we're sort of a little bit fudging on some things. So you, uh, the question you ask, uh, my answer is awkward because it actually, that's not the case anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just it's just evolved over time uh, into. Yeah, it, it still does. I mean, I could look at it, and there's one or two. I mean, Nick Clark, um, he got nationally reviewed. He got this. He got that. He got. Uh, is that somebody who's never recorded before? No. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly that's the yeah. answer. No. Yes. I mean, it's like it is. Um, It is an evolving thing, and I wrestle with it because the things that could bring more awareness to Little Village, the artists that could bring more awareness, it'd be easy enough at this point to go out and get whoever, Jackson Brown, to make a record for Little Village, Bonnie Raitt. I mean, right. But, and it would be very successful. And there, there's a lot of pressure, as you probably know, like in doing records to get. And I've avoided doing it, of getting somebody to play on your record who's famous. That's been, John Lee did it. Hooker, a lot of people do it, right? You get yeah. famous, it helps you. The problem is it's a slippery slope because once you do it, and I've been involved in things like that, where once you have Bonnie Raitt and Carlos Santana playing your record, well, who are you going to have playing your next record? Well, you have yeah. to keep the, you know, and then it's not about you, it's about them. So. I got. Yeah. A, I have a friend of mine that's got an arts nonprofit. That's a percussion teaches this drum method nonprofit, and he and he does. And he's a former studio musician in LA, and he lives in Santa Barbara. And he told me he could make more money. And he does a concert at like a thousand seat theater every year, and he gets all his rock star friends to come and play. But he said he could make more money by selling autographed guitars. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he could. Take a, take a guitar to a gig and have Bonnie Raitt sell it and then auction it off. You can make more money. The bottom line would be it costs hardly anything to do. Well, so, make I mean, have you thought, have you thought about, I mean, for in taking all these reasons into consideration, all these factors, have you thought about saying, hey, Jackson Brown, come do a record for Little Village in hopes that that, you know, would, would expand funding and things like that? Or or do you continue to want to stay away from that sort of thing? I not only want to stay away from it, I'm trying to really, and it's, you know, it, it doesn't help with funders, but I'm trying to not become too big. I don't, right. people go, what would you do if you got a million dollar grant? And I go, <laughs> give it back. I mean, you know, there've been, you know, and I knock on wood. I feel really fortunate um, that we've been able to do the work that we have in terms of raising money and being able to do this. We're doing more and more CDs. We're doing more things. We're able to get Nick Clark to go to, you know, the Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. And 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 that was amazing. To I mean, he was so incredible. They blew their minds. He blew their minds. This woman, there was, I'm digressing into it. Too bad. Yeah. But he goes, yeah, yeah. there was... There were eight music therapists at this hospital. It's huge, you know. It's a, it's like a Carnegie Mellon. It's like it goes on for forever. And right, um, we go and they, they have an atrium. They've got a stage. They got a TV station, studio. They got everything. They can pipe it into the kids in their rooms and everything. And we go to lunch. You know, they had sandwiches, and we sat there and we ate. And these are eight music therapists that work there. And they go, "I've got four degrees." I've been doing this for 30 years and I can't do what Nick does. He said, it's unbelievable. I mean, 
he just translates to i mean i, was, I think on some level he translates obviously to everybody but for kids there was yeah. this thing where they just and there was one woman that said that she i care she was pissed <laughs> because he, he just has this gift and he kind of and I was surprised how informed because they were talking about different uh music therapy theories and books and stuff and Nick knew a fair amount about it I think he kept up and they were impressed by that too but anyway yeah. the, you know raising this money and meeting people and doing things like that it, it enables to be able to do it does it is it get the same kind of attention that it would be if somebody else did it Hang up. Um, unfortunately, and I don't know why, you've called at a time when everybody else is calling. Usually nobody calls me. Um, ask me another question. I'll do better. Well, and, and to, seg uh, to finish the segue on Nick Clark, um, who's, a, who's a very good buddy of mine, and that's kind of our, that's our mutual connection. Um, yeah, he's a great artist, and he's put out his children's record, is wonderful, and he's having some success with it. And, uh, oh, it must be important. It must. It must be. Uh, it must be about your extended car warranty. No, it's it's about the about raising money. Oh well, that is, that is very important. Hang up on me next time. And uh, and so so how is uh, to kind of wrap up here? I mean, how is the little village in terms of a business? In terms of a record label? How is it different? Because I know it is, it is quite a bit different. How is it different from another indie record label um, where you're doing grassroots things? Well, first of all, um, the artist no, owes nothing. Little Village has never sold a CD because I don't own, I don't own, little, no, I say I, but Little Village owns none of the content. Everything is given to the artist. They owe nothing. I don't own publishing. I don't own it. We pay for everything, and they don't have to pay us back for any of it. Now, that is, I can tell you, is unique. Um, and I, as I say, tell people, as I've learned the hard way in my career, the meaning of the words in perpetuity. And there is no, mm. this doesn't go on forever, that there is they owe nothing, um, and they get everything. Everything is set up in a way. I don't even, for sales that are done online sales at Amazon and things like that, it says Little Village on it, but the money goes directly to them. Yeah. So th th that's, that is unique. And, um, uh, you know, because as you probably know, record deals, traditional record deals, for-profit record deals are mm. generally built on the premise of, you're buying money from them to one degree or another, and you're going to pay it back at a windfall profit for them. Um, you know, I don't sell CDs to the, the label, like a lot of small independent labels, major ones now, you know, they'll sell CDs to the artist for $12, $13. I know somebody like Bruce Iglauer to Alligator, he goes, one of the first, the first artists we did was Wee Willie Walker, and he said, we love Wee Willie Walker. He's not, I, my artists do 100 to 120 dates a year. And if there, he goes, when was the last time you saw a record store? There are none. He said, my artists are my record stores and they have to go out there and sell my records. And when mm. they do, so, so no matter how much I love somebody, it's a matter of how much they work, not how much I love them. Yeah. And one of the things that, that makes us unique for a record label is there is no, seven year seven record options or whatever the, the deal is that you know of where the, the it's the option of the record companies that yeah you always five more records you know or something like that we actually look at as a metric we look at artists who do a record for little village and then go somewhere else we yeah. see that now we've in terms of the money that's outlaid you know it, it um it's a real loss because we, in some cases we spend money, but I don't intend for people to make it. We're not in a way, we're not really a record label. We are a tool for people to help them in their career in some way, a small yeah. way. I don't know how to make rock stars. I don't know anything about it at all. So. 
Well, but you're doing it. Uh, you're doing something that you love doing, and you're and you're genuinely helping out artists that you want to help out. And I, I think that's a neat thing. Yeah, and I, and 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 absolutely, Andy. That's right. And the thing is that I've been really, I I, I I've been like I said, there's a lot of luck involved. I've got people that are, you know, like Kid Anderson and Rick Astrin and Maurice Danny. Right. The list goes on and on. Mike Kappas, and there are people that are, you know. Uh, there's a woman who, uh, incredible story of a woman that was in the mariachi that we record, a teenage mariachi, that she now has gone on um, to be, and I know her and her family, and she's gone on to be, now she's the uh, assistant uh, to the president, and is chief of staff at Juilliard. She's incredible. She's from Bakersfield. It's amazing, amazing story. Um, and there's a lot of really incredible stories of people being helped in small ways, you know. The thing is that, I mean, I know you're probably done, but I'll tell you that what's really a question that I ask people is that we Willie Walker was this soul singer. He passed away. Yeah. But soul singer that was found um, by Rick Estrin. And um, it was an incredible story. We recorded him, and that was before the idea of doing a nonprofit. And they kind of go, well, what are we going to do with this record? Nobody wants it. I go, I'll do it. What the hell? And we'll do a nonprofit and we'll do this. And I had it sort of all came together. And he was able to, and he was an older gentleman. He was able, he went to Europe, played all the jazz festivals and went around. And really he had been, he had not been a professional musician since he was in his early 20s. He had worked as a as a hospital orderly for forever. And so here's this guy at the, you know, in, in his retired years, he was going to Europe and going to the United States and doing cruises and, was, and everybody loved him. He was a great guy. That's one example. In the same year, that's one example. In the same year, we did a recording of Los Tres Amigos Nuvico, which are, are these uh, Mishtek uh, North American, well, they're from Oaxaca, uh, indigenous people. They don't speak English and they don't speak Spanish. It's an indigenous dialect. Mm. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a real ethnomusicological record because it's not that easy to listen to, um, which happens um, for the Western ear, for my, you know, it's not, uh, it's not Celia Dan. Mm. So, yeah. so, you know, and, and, and they ended up, and they're from Santa Maria. It's a, an amazing story that I won't bore you with further. But um, north of here is a town of Santa Maria. And there's 20,000 of them living in a town of 100,000. And they fly completely under the radar. They're illegal. Uh, most of them are, are illegal aliens. Um, they can be. They're farm workers. And they're all really, really short. Uh, anyway, it's it's an incredible story. Um, and somebody took their record, their CD, and they use it in the elementary schools and the kindergartens to explain for the Mishtek kids to show what their culture is like to other kids in the class. So you go, wow. okay, that's a great thing. Because yeah. which one has more value? We Willie Walker or this? Yeah. Yeah. But it's both. It's a trick question. Yeah, I don't think you can. I was going to say, don't ask me to answer that. <laughs> but it, has, it is this kind of thing here and this kind of thing. You know, right. and we, Willie Walker, you know, I don't know if he did 100 gigs in a year, but he probably did 30 or 40, you know. And yeah. I couldn't get these guys that played uh, Los Trace Amigos Nuvico to do a gig because they work like six days a week. Um, in the fields, you know, that's it's right. her. Um, so anyway, I mean, it's that kind of thing. It is the, the contrast, it, you know, and blues music for in and of itself is the kind of thing where it's being overrun by a lot of stuff that's samey. It's all guitar dominated. Right. And, and I, I think that there's an audience for, for blues music. Really, there is. Um, yeah. Kind of untapped, not unlike it was in Newport in '65, where there was a bunch of college kids who had not heard blues. I think that it's the same thing. If I can get people that listen to mariachi to listen to blues, to listen to Aki Kamar, it is the diversity that actually grows the audience for the 
for a genres of music that people think are worn out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's the diverse. Yeah, no, no, I, I could absolutely see that. And you're, because it, it is, uh, you do see the same thing in the blues clubs, uh, seven nights a week, right? It's, um, well, thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. If you don't mind, stay on the line with me for just a sec, but in, in front of our audience, I want to say thank you. Did, did we leave anything out? Did we do okay? Well, I hope that there's something that's linear enough in this that you can use. I'm sorry, but that's what you get. <laughs> you have to call me back at four o'clock in the afternoon, and I could probably be a little bit more fun. <laughs> no, you the kind of person that just wants to hear sort of, you, know, you like yep. that. Yep, yep, absolutely. Well, thank you very much. My conversation with Jim Pugh. Uh, there's a link to the Little Village Foundation website in the show notes. Be sure to check that out. Um, aside from that, I think that's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening, and I will chat with you next Thursday. Mm-hmm.